Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. It is referred to in Southeast Asia as the king of fruits. But if you go by its smell, the king needs a bath. What fruit is that? And uh, I would also like to know what are the six most abundant elements in the human body? The six most abundant elements in the human body. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact. And on Sunday afternoons, I chat with you here to try to uh, delve into the world of science, clear up some mysteries, bring some interesting stories to your attention. And I generally start out by posing a couple of questions to you so that you can uh, think about them, get online or get on the phone and give me the answers. Well, if you're going to get on the phone, it's 514-790-0800. 514-790-0800. Of course, that is also the number you can use to ask whatever questions you may have that I may have a chance at answering. And if you want to just communicate by text, it is 514-800. 514-800. Again, you can ask questions there, and you can give me your answers to the questions that I asked. Let me repeat them. It is referred to in Southeast Asia as the king of fruits, but if you go by its smell, the king needs a bath. What fruit are we talking about? And I would also like to know the six most abundant elements in the human body. I don't need them in order. I just want to know what are the six most abundant elements in the human body. All right, give us a call, 514-790-0800 or 514-800. This past week, I happened to get a chance to go to Reno, Nevada. I was invited to speak at the University of Nevada at Reno. And I had a bit of extra time there, and they did uh, uh, take me around uh, on a nice tour, and I had a chance to visit Lake Tahoe. And uh, that is really quite a spectacular uh, site. I had not been there before. Very, very impressive. And there is a sign beside the lake that says that it is 99.994% pure water. And uh, they also make the uh, claim there that distilled water is 99.998% pure water, so that the lake water is almost as pure as distilled water. And uh, yeah, I can believe that when you look at the lake. I mean, there's uh, no industry, nothing around there to pollute it. And it is remarkably clear. Uh, I don't think it's very inviting for swimming. I think it's very cold. Uh, but it is certainly very, very pretty to look at. And uh, I uh, also had the chance to visit the location where the 1980 Winter Olympics were held. At that time, it was called Squaw Valley. And uh, I thought it is still called Squaw Valley. Apparently, it is not. Uh, Recently, the name was changed because it seems that squaw is uh, a derogatory term uh, for natives. So now it has been changed to Palisades, Palisades, California, instead of Squaw Valley, California. 
Uh, I did not see the hockey rink where the 1980 um, Olympic uh, hockey games were held. Uh, I would have liked to see that. Actually, I don't even know if it still exists. They didn't seem to to know that either. Uh, because uh, I think, as I mentioned to you before, I had an interest in the uh, 1980 Olympics, not only because I was a hockey fan and... Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, watching those games. That was, uh, I think, the first time I saw any Olympics uh, televised. And um, there were some very interesting games there. Uh, Canada uh, lost to the Americans, which was a huge uh, surprise. But the Americans also beat the Soviets, which was a gigantic surprise. And they went on to play the Czechs in the final game. And they were behind until between the second and third period, a Russian defenseman came into the American dressing room and uh, advised them to inhale some oxygen. And they scored uh, six unanswered goals in the third period and won the game. And this has always been, you know, the story has been told uh, as to how effective breathing oxygen is. Uh, because, of course, uh, it is a high elevation uh, there, you know, Lake Tahoe is something like 6,600 feet above uh, sea level. <laughs> but the, the interesting little footnote to the story is that none of the goals were scored by um, any of the players who had inhaled the oxygen. Anyway, it's uh, <laughs> it was interesting. And I would have liked to visit that the arena where uh, this happened when the Americans in the first ever Miracle on Ice beat, beat the Czechs, but nobody seemed to know if that uh, arena still exists. But certainly the ski hills were there and the, the mountain is, is really spectacular. And uh, the gondolas that take you up the mountain are, are gigantic. They can hold like 40 to 50 people. Unfortunately, it was closed so that they didn't get a chance to, to go up. Anyway, I had a very nice visit at the University of Nevada. Uh, talked to a lot of interesting students, uh, a lot of uh, very bright students, and uh, had a chance to give a public lecture. And it was uh, sort of nice, you know, after uh, all the years of COVID, to get back to doing something uh, in terms of, uh, you know, public presentations. Uh, because although, you know, we've had a pretty good time with Zoom, and I, 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 do enjoy uh, doing things on Zoom. It's still quite different when you have a live audience in, in front of you and you see their reactions and then, you know, you can have some discussions uh, after. All right. Uh, the uh, I, do, I just had a comment from JB about the uh, 1980 Winter Games, and I misspoke. J, J, you know, JB is always right. Uh, it was the 1960 Winter Olympics, of course, that were held in Squaw Valley, not the 1980. The 1980 were held in, in Lake Placid. And that was the second miracle on ice. The first miracle on ice was indeed in 1960 at Squaw Valley, or is it now called Palisades, uh, when the Americans uh, came from behind in the final game to beat the Czechs. Uh, so, yes, uh, you know, it's always good to have uh, James uh, listening in because, of course, not only does he know all of the answers, but should I err about something, as I just did, saying the wrong date, he is there to correct me. So, yes, the Squaw Valley Olympics were in 1960, but we're not supposed to call it Squaw Valley anymore. It is uh, 
the area is known as uh, Palisades. And it's certainly worthwhile, a little visit, if you ever get a chance to go there. I mean, Lake Tahoe is, is uh, really j just magnificent, and I, I don't think I've ever seen clear water like that, as I guess it is, because as they say, it's 99.994% pure water. Uh, how would you know something like that? How would you determine the purity of, of water? Well, I, I think in this, uh, this era, we can do that by uh, uh, chromatography, gas chromatography. Uh, we can uh, compare it to a sample of uh, other of distilled water, and then we can sort of make a, a, a calculation. Uh, I think that is probably how they did it, but I'm, I'm not absolutely sure of that. Uh, because 99.994% uh, means that you're talking about five significant figures. That's pretty impressive. Anyway, so much for that little rant. We'll check traffic and be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. You know, I actually do listen to the uh, commercials while, uh, you know, I wait to get back on air. And there was a commercial for McDonald's. I got to tell you something. I mean, I don't often eat at McDonald's. It's r rare. But when I was at the airport and uh, uh, in uh, in Denver, and I had to make a rather quick connection, and I was hungry, so I was looking for something fast to pick up. So I did go to McDonald's, and I ordered uh, their uh, what they call their crispy chicken sandwich. And I got to tell you, I was surprised by how good it tasted. It basically tasted like a, a little schnitzel inside of a hamburger bun and even had a couple of pickle slices on it though that was surprised there you know i uh i think of myself as sort of a schnitzel aficionado i make it i can judge it and i judged that that one was uh, surprisingly good anyway there you go for whatever it may mean uh we uh, of course get lots of people calling in with answers but uh, Kenny is always one of the first ones to call in. So let's see if Kenny this time does have a correct answer. Kenny? Yeah, good afternoon, Joe. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Good. So you, you got an answer for me? For the, uh, what is the six elements for the body? Six elements in the body. Go ahead. It's, uh, it's uh, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and calcium. Oxygen. You didn't give me six. What's that? You did not give me six. Oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Well, how oxygen, many is that? Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Right? How many? How many are you count? How many are you giving me? There's oxygen. There's carbon. There's hydrogen, nitrogen, and calcium, and phosphorus. The last, uh, what's, last the, what's, what's the last one? It's the uh, phosphorus, P-H-O-S-P-H-O-R-U-S. Well, yeah, that's phosphorus. Phosphorus, yeah. <laughs> okay, repeat after me, phosphorus. Ph phosphorus. Phosphorus. Ph phosphorus. <laughs> All right, we'll give it to you, Kenny. All right. One of the rare times you get something right. All right. We'll hear from you again next week, I'm sure. All right, and I did get an answer to my other question as well, uh, but uh, texted in. But let's see whether or not uh, Naveen from Pierrefonds has that answer. Naveen? The most important elements of the body? 
No, we got that one already. Oh, uh, the one that, that about one. the fruit that smells, right? Yes. The mango. No, the mango has a pleasant smell. Um. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. Okay, uh, let's I'll see whether. Again. Okay, let's see whether or not Peter from Point Claire. Peter. Yeah. Hi. This is me, Peter. Hi, Doctor Joe. Hey. So, so what? The food, what's, called, what's, the food is called Dorian fruit. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not like the sore, and it tastes very good, and it's very healthy. I'm told. Have you ever tasted it? Yes. Actually, you can buy it in Montreal. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've seen it. Uh, I've, I've, I've tasted seen it. it. Yeah, and very uh, good. Actually, it smells like a gas leak, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've not tasted it, but I have smelled it, and I, I would uh, yeah. say it smells yeah. more like a toilet yeah. than a gas leak. Yeah. We had to go out to the parking lot to cut it because we weren't <laughs> yeah. going to cut it at work. We went to okay. the parking lot to cut it. Okay, you got that right, and I'll give out a little bit of a background on this. But indeed, the okay. durian is one of the most interesting fruits in existence, and it grows mostly in Southeast Asia, and it's called the king of fruit. Uh, but as I said, that king needs a bath. Well, people speak in exalted terms about the taste of the durian. They do admit that its fragrance brings up memories of a public toilet. That's what I would compare it to. And, uh, you know, it's if you ever taken a sniff at a sewer, that's sort of it. <clears throat> uh, durian is an Indonesian word and derives from duri, which translates as thorn. Indeed, the durian is a thorny fruit, well, in more ways than one. Uh, it's about the size of a very large cantaloupe, shaped like a football, and has a hard shell that's covered with hard and sharp spikes. Uh, let's just say that when a durian falls from a tree, you don't want to be standing under it. But eating it is a different matter. It seems that a ripe, well-chosen durian is exquisite. So I hear. The choosing, though, should be done by an expert known as a tukang durian. He's a salesman. It seems durians are always sold by men. And he's installed in a roadside stall with a few chairs. The taste is often described like that of exotic raspberry, albeit ones that is consumed in a toilet. Durians smell so bad that they are banned from airplanes, hotels, and public transport. Devotees are not turned off by the smell and supposedly are turned on by the taste. Legend has it that the durian has aphrodisiac properties, hence the expression, when the durians are down, the sarongs are up. Well, there's no evidence that this is true. Eating durians does come uh, with a feeling of warmth, at least, you know, so I hear, unless you're consuming it in ice cream. Marco Polo Ice Creamery in San Francisco makes a sought-after durian ice cream. According to the hype, the first taste may not be enthralling, but the flavor of the durian grows with each subsequent bite. Whether it arouses the passion is questionable, but one thing is for sure, durian lovers are passionate about this king of fruit. All right, so we do have the, the answer to those uh, uh, questions. And uh, let, me, uh, let me then uh, pose uh, another question. Oh, actually, let me just refer to something that we talked about last week, for which I, I don't think we got an exact uh, answer. Uh, the question was about the legend that claimed uh, uh, 
that as part of the mummy's curse, Lord Carnarvon, who financed the the opening up of King uh, Tut's tomb, uh, died soon after. And the question was, uh, from what did he die? Uh, I mean, if you're going to believe the mummy's curse, uh, then uh, that curse uh, was carried by a mosquito because Lord Carnarvon died from an infected mosquito bite. And of course, you never know how a mummy is going to uh, take vengeance on people who want to open up their uh, their tomb. All right, so we do have uh, answers to uh, questions uh, that I posed earlier. Uh, all right, so here's one for those of you who are uh, cooks. What can you add to onions when you're browning them to make the reaction quicker? What can you add to onions when you're browning them to make that reaction quicker? Why would you want to brown onions? Because uh, it does bring out flavor. I kind of uh, know a bit about that because in, uh, in Hungarian cooking, virtually everything starts with uh, getting your onions brown. And then, of course, you add your vegetables, your your tomatoes, your green pepper. If you're going to use some sausage, you you add that. But the browning of uh, of the uh, onions is always the first step. So my question is, how can you brown those onions more quickly? And the the answer is not turning up the heat and making them burn more quickly. There's something that you can add. The question is, what is that? All right, well, we're going to take another little break here, and this time it is for the news, so we can find out about all of the horrific things that are going on in the world. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. I think uh, Antonella is going to attempt to answer my question about onions. Antonella. Yes, hi, how are you? Good, what's up? I think you should be adding sugar to your onions. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting answer. It's certainly not the one I had in mind. I mean, sugar, w sugar itself will brown, right? Yeah, so will that it will there, it. it will therefore, you know, brown the whole mixture. Uh, but I, I was actually thinking of something else that you add to make the onions brown, but not because it browns by itself. But that's not a bad, not a bad answer. So then okay, it let me see. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. No. All right. Let me see if Sonia has a different answer from that. Sonia. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. I, I, I hope your daughter is okay. That's my first thing. Yes, see. my daughter uh, so far, uh, they're all they're all okay there. Uh, but, uh, okay. you know, obviously it's not a happy situation. There's no, it's a lot not. No, no. Spending um, a lot but, of time uh, my, in My little shelters. trick in the kitchen, I never use the recipe book. But uh, my little trick with onions, and I'm, yeah. I live on a farm. We grow onions here, and they okay. make you sleepy. And uh, I never cry when I cut them. But when I, okay. when I cook them, I use beer. <laughs> <laughs> I've I never heard that one. Beer. I've, I've never heard that. And, but Can you hear that? 
Do do you, do you add that because it uh, it makes it brown more quickly or why? why? Yes, absolutely. In the frying pan, when they get it, you know, when they're when they're on the high heat or whatever. Okay. Well, I think bit, it. Uh, uh, that may be. I I mean, beer of course has a lot of carbohydrates in it that would brown. This is still well, not the one that I I was thinking of. I'm I'm thinking of something that you add to enhance the chemical reaction, not something that that browns by itself. Okay. Anyway, mm. I'm glad. I'm glad that you don't cry when you cut onions. Okay. Let me see. Freddie may have an answer. Freddie. Hey, Doctor Joe. Yeah, the answer is uh, baking soda. Yes. Very good. And you know this from experience, or you looked it up? No, no. I know this from experience. I used to work in yeah. a restaurant as a short order cook, and we had bills to, that had to go out fast, and we're, we were in a rush. I remember right. one of the head chefs would add some baking soda to caramelize everything much quicker. No, this is true. But what it does, of course, it raises the pH uh, of the solution, makes it somewhat more yeah. alkaline. And that enhances what we call the Maillard reaction. And that's okay. the, the reaction, browning reaction, and it's between amino acids and sugars that are already present in the onion. Yes, there so go. there you go. And I, I, I think that... Uh, all the people who have been adding beer and sugar and what else <laughs> to their onions now know that they can do the same job by adding a little bake, baking soda. Okay, Fred, thanks very go. much for that. You're welcome. Okay. I also had a, a, a question texted in about what my opinion is on the recent studies about erythritol and high risk of heart attack and stroke. Funny that you should ask because I have recently addressed this and uh, I've got my notes on it here. So let me try to answer that question uh, for you. Uh, first of all, what about what is erythritol? You can find it in grocery stores, you can buy it online, and you may already be consuming it in, in what they call keto-friendly ice cream or in some non-caloric uh, stevia and monk food sweeteners where it is used as a filler. Of course, these days you can also find it in headlines. <laughs> so this is erythritol a compound that like lactitol, maltitol, sorbitol, xylitol is naturally produced in small amounts from sugars in plants as well as in our bodies. And these compounds are not readily metabolized and they're excreted in the urine. And since sugar alcohols taste sweet and can be readily produced by fermentation methods, they have found application as non-caloric sweeteners. Some people know the laxative effect by but uh, by and large, sugar alcohols have been deemed to be safe. But now the safety of one of these, erythritol, is being questioned, at least for people who have pre-existing risk factors for heart disease, and that would mean diabetes, high blood pressure, or elevated cholesterol. Now, interestingly, this finding was an accidental one. Researchers at the Cleveland Clinic were studying blood samples from people with existing cardiovascular disease uh, and, uh, you know, they were looking at risk factors with a view towards finding any component that might predict the risk for a heart attack or stroke. And they were surprised to find the connection with erythritol. People with this chemical in their blood, uh, at least if they were the top 25% of blood levels, they had doubled the risk of heart attack or stroke when compared with those in the bottom 25%. Uh, the risky levels can only be reached by consuming foods that contain added erythritol, which may be simply declared on the label as sugar alcohol, or sometimes as reducing sugar. Uh, 
So the question here is, was this just a chance association or was erythritol really a causative factor? One possibility was that erythritol affects the blood's ability to clot, since clot formation is a cause for heart attack and stroke. Indeed, when erythritol was added to blood samples in the lab, clot formation was enhanced. Circulating erythritol levels in the blood of mice were also found to be related to the extent of clot formation in response to an injury of their carotid artery. And then the researchers followed up by having eight volunteers drink a beverage containing 30 grams of erythritol, an amount many people who are trying to reduce their caloric intake from carbohydrates may regularly consume. And their blood levels of erythritol increased a thousandfold. And for the next couple of days, the risk of clot formation was indeed elevated. Now, producers of, er of these foods that contain erythritol uh, and as sweeteners, uh, they claim that the compound has been shown to be safe and that has been approved by regulatory agencies around the world. That is true, but such approval is based on toxicity studied in animals. And there, erythritol indeed is non-toxic. But the approval process does not require studying cardiovascular risk in populations with already increased risk. Finding that erythritol has an effect on blood clotting was a, a chance discovery, and I don't think it can be ignored. Uh, what we have here is yet another example that purported quick and easy solutions to weight control can have negative features that may not be immediately apparent. Instead of relying on zero-calorie sweeteners, why not just cut down on sugar and refined carbohydrate consumption? And then you don't have to worry about erythritol. I mean, I don't think that it's a huge worry. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, populations consume uh, 30 grams of erythritol daily on, on a regular uh, basis. But, uh, you know, it, it is something that... Um, uh, needs to be followed up just to see if smaller amounts of erythritol also uh, cause changes in, in blood clotting. But, uh, you know, if you are eating a healthy diet, uh, you don't need these artificial sweeteners. And then, of course, there's no, no concern. Anyway, you are listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take our final break and we'll see what is happening with uh, traffic out there. We'll be right back. All right. Uh, I think John from Laval has a question for me. Hey, John. Hey, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks so much for taking my call. Okay. What would you like? Um, my mother, she, show, she showed no signs of sickness at all. And then last, last Friday, she was admitted to the, to the lakeshore for pneumonia and liquid in her lungs. And they're just draining it out since. And, um, her, her heart, is, it, it went down to 23, then they had to resuscitate her, and then, like, she was good, and then the next day it went up to, like, 180. And I was just wondering, like, do you know why that happened? Um, is, uh, is it normal when you have pneumonia? Why she didn't show signs of being sick at all? But I, I was sick maybe two weeks ago. I don't know why I had a chest infection. I, I was choking to breathe. Do you think maybe there's a high chance... I gave it to her, even though I didn't see her, but I was kind of... Uh, this is, I really can't comment on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, this is something that you have to discuss with the physicians yeah, uh, there. Uh, 
I mean, uh, yes, uh, it is certainly possible to have such fluctuating heart rates when, when someone has pneumonia. And okay. whether whether or not you gave it to her, I mean, it's impossible to know. But this is something yeah. to discuss with the physician. Sorry, I can't help you with that. No, it's okay. You, you helped me. Okay. Um, okay. God, God bless you. Long live. Good luck. Good luck. Okay. Uh, let me talk a little bit about soybeans, of all things, and uh, about Henry Ford's connection to it. Uh, in 1913, uh, Ford, of course, revolutionized the automobile industry with the introduction of the assembly line. And that, you know, made cars affordable for uh, the average person. And uh, Ford thought that farmers were ideal customers for his cars and, uh, and of course, for his trucks. But he knew that farmers often struggled financially. Uh, he thought that there would be a mutual benefit if the company could find the use for farmers' products in the production of automobiles. And the farmers would then earn more and buy more Ford products, you know, win all around. And... Uh, the plan picked up speed when the Great Depression hit in 1929, and that had a devastating impact on agricultural communities. And that's when Ford launched research into the possibility of using soybeans to encourage the growing of soybeans in his industry. Could they somehow be used you know, in the car industry? And he started up a, a research institute which was uh, headed by Robert uh, Boyer, a young man he had hired. He was only 21 years old, uh, but he thought that he had a great f future. And he had just graduated technical college with a degree in, in, in chemistry. Uh, but he was quite familiar with the uh, literature, the scientific literature. And building on German technology, uh, Boyer developed a method to use naphtha, and that's a solvent obtained from distillation of petroleum, and he, with this, he extracted the fat content of the soybean, that is the soy oil. And that proved to be an effective carrier for pigments. And it became a major component of the paint used on all Ford cars. That there was something else that could be useful in terms of the soy oil. Uh, it could be broken down into fatty acids and glycerol. And glycerol turned out to be useful in the production of shock absorbers, which of course was great for Ford as well. And then there was a the question of what to do with the defatted protein-rich residue that was left after the oil had been extracted. Well, much earlier in 1906, Leo Bakeland had made the first synthetic plastic from phenol and formaldehyde. Modestly, he called it Bakelite. And uh, Ford had been using this to make horn buttons and gear shift knobs and pedals on his cars. But now his researchers found that you could uh, mix soybean meal with the Bakelite and it would not lose any of its properties. In fact, it would become a lighter plastic and it was just as useful. But now, of course, it was fortified with the soybean. And by about 1935, about 60 pounds of soybeans were processed into paint and molded plastic parts in every Ford car. In 1940, there, there was this interesting photo that was featured in, in many magazines of uh, Henry Ford wielding an axe ready to smash the rear of a car. 
Well, that actually was his own car that had been fitted by Robert Boyer with a panel on the uh, on the trunk. That is the, the the lid of the of the trunk, and this had been made indeed with. Um, uh, the Fina Formada resin mixed in with some soybeans. And uh, the year after this, Photo, you know, made this whole soybean thing very popular. Uh, Ford actually developed what came to be called the soy car. And it was a car that actually had a steel frame, but it had 14 panels of this plastic material on it, which made the car about 30% lighter than a conventional Ford car. And of course, uh, as the war was approaching, there was a shortage of metal. So the use of, uh, of soybeans was you know, uh, certainly a good thing. But uh, the, the hype here was more than the reality because the plastic that was used in that so-called soy car was mostly the was mostly bakelite although it did have some soy that that uh, uh, was blended into it so describing it as the first plastic bodied car is actually correct because the body was made of of plastic but it was not uh, a bioplastic as it is often referred to because only a small part of it uh, came from uh, from soy and only one prototype of this was ever made that car never really went uh, uh, went anywhere uh, but uh, uh, ford's researchers also developed uh, fibers that were made from soy protein and on his seventh fifth birthday ford got a present of a tie uh, which was partly made from this soy wool, as they called it. And he was very happy about that. And later he even had a soybean suit made for himself. But his proposal to make army uniforms from soy uh, did not appeal to the military. Uh, but uh, he did use soybean wool uh, for upholstery in his cars. So there's no question that Henry Ford has received deserved accolades for founding the American automobile industry uh, and for you know championing the growing of soybeans. But his legacy is marred by his race, racism and his anti-Semitism. He believed that blacks were intellectually inferior and that there was a worldwide Jewish conspiracy to control unions, banks, and the media. In 1920, he bought a newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, in which he published a weekly series called The International Jew, The World's Problem. Ford is the only American mentioned by name in Hitler's Mein Kampf, an illusion to which he apparently did not object. And I suspect he may also have had some strange views uh, about the uh, horrific terrorist attacks on Israel uh, that uh, were atrocities that have not been seen since the time of the Nazis were, uh, you know, perpetrated. And uh, I wonder what Henry Ford would have said uh, about that. We have run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>